0: You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine Digital Health Council podcast, where we explore health tech innovations that are transforming healthcare. With me, your host, Dr. Annabelle Painter. In this episode, Stephen Carter delivers a masterclass in all things IP for health tech and AI. This includes how to decide whether or not to apply for a patent, why you need to be wary of copyright when using open source code, busting the myth that you cannot patent AI products, and the key pitfalls that companies and organisations of all sizes fall into when thinking about IP. If you're new to intellectual property or want to know how it might apply to a health tech or AI innovation that you're working with, then this episode is for you. There are so many nuggets of wisdom in this one. I hope you find the conversation helpful. So to start us off today Stephen, to give some context, can you tell us a bit about your background and experience?
1: Yeah happy to. So I'm a a patent attorney by qualification, so UK and European qualified and I worked for just over 20 years in a couple of different law firms in London doing what I'd call the regular patent attorney thing. But then for the last nearly six years now I stepped out of that world slightly and now I'd label myself, I guess, as an IP consultant. So working predominantly with with tech businesses, a lot in the med tech, health tech market, to help them with IP strategy. So helping them understand you know, what is IP, why is it relevant to their business um, and, and what they should be doing about it. And, and, and I guess most recently, delivering those services through and Health.
0: OK, so let's start with the basics. When we use the term intellectual property in relation to digital health, technologies what do we actually mean?
1: Uh, it's, it's a great question and I, th- I think actually there's a lot of misunderstanding around this so it's a, it's a good place to start as well and, and I guess the first the first, the place I like to start is to think about IP in two different ways so to think about what I'd call IP assets so intellectual property assets which are the, the kind of valuable stuff that you're creating in the business and then the intellectual property rights which are the, the legal protection that you wrap around those assets to to capture that value and keep it. So when we're talking about IP assets in the digital health space, you're talking about things like uh, the software code that's being created for the apps. You're talking importantly you're talking a lot about the data. So that's that's a really important valuable asset that we need to be thinking about. Uh, you're talking about the the screen layouts in the app. You're talking about the maybe the devices or so the monitors if, if you're and you've got wearable devices or you've got other monitors and internet connected devices so all of these things are the the assets that you're, you're innovating you're developing and then you've got the intellectual property rights so things like patents and trademarks and trade secrets and copyright and registered designs which are the legal rights that you then wrap around those assets and um, to yeah to look after them and you know, the aim, I guess, at the end of the day is to to recognise that you're putting a lot of effort and, and thought and investors money or your own money into developing this stuff. Yeah. And all of this stuff is your intellectual property, which is ultimately the thing you're going to exploit to to do good in the world and hopefully make a bit of money along the way.
0: All right. So let's dig into those intellectual property rights a bit. Can you tell us about difference between the different types of rights, so patents, trademarks, and automatic protection, things like copyright. There's so much in there. Can can you break it down for us?
1: Yeah, yeah. let's try and take it stepwise. So, so you're right. I mean, the first thing, as you as you said, then there's there's sort of two categories of rights. So there's the registered rights, which are the ones where there are application processes and you have to do things to secure those rights in the first place. So that's patents, trademarks, um, and then registered designs we'll touch on briefly as well. And then you have the the unregistered rights, so the ones that come into existence automatically. Yes, yeah, so long as you do things in the right way. Which yeah, the most significant ones are probably trade secrets, copyright, and then database rights it's worth mentioning briefly. So, so we start at the top. Patents are, are the they're the kind of IP right that everyone thinks about when you mention IP, when you mention intellectual property. Patents are like the the, the one that people probably think of most, and they're there very specifically to protect technical innovation. So. Things like yeah, a, a new approach to analysing a radiographic image to extract features from it. That's something that's a technical innovation that you can potentially protect with a patent. A new approach to pulse oximetry. Yeah, you, well, we had the gla- classic example in the in the press recently about the Apple Apple Masimo case, where Masimo have got patents around pulse oximetry and they were able to stop. Apple temporarily, they have able to stop them importing Apple Watches into the States. So that's another example of something that's patentable. So it's all about protecting technical innovation. Registered trademarks, on the other hand, are all about protecting brands. So they're about um, ensuring that as a consumer, I know that when I'm buying um, a particular product, it's coming from a legitimate source. So if I'm buying, I'll use Apple again as an example, if I'm buying an Apple product, I know it's come from Apple. Um, and Apple protect that trademark um, and very, they protect it you know, very aggressively to make sure that people can't pass themselves off as being Apple, so that I as the consumer are kind of confused into buying products from another source, thinking that they're Apple products. So yeah, so brand, so trademarks are all about protecting brand. So that might be your logo, it might be your company name, it might be product names, um, and it's all about being able to stop other people misusing those brands. Um, Registered designs, that's the third kind of registered right where you have to take action to to secure the right. They're all about protecting the appearance of something. And you might say, well, what's that got to do with uh, digital health in particular? But actually, in Europe and in some other jurisdictions, you can use registered designs to protect the, the graphical user interface. So the appearance of the app and the screen layout. So it can actually provide you know useful extra layer of protection and on top of what else you might have. So, so there you're kind of you know, your strong registered rights and the significance of them being registered is that they're, they're monopoly rights. So they can be infringed by other people without them even knowing that those rights existed in the first place, without them knowing about you as a business. So if someone does something that falls within the scope of your patent rights, you can take action to stop them um, or to claim damages from them. So, so you have financial compensation. Whereas the unregistered rights they're, they come into existence automatically. They have the benefit that you're not, you're not having to go through the application process. You're not having to spend what, you know, particularly in the case of patents, what can be quite significant sums of money to secure those rights. But they're, they're weaker rights in a sense, because typically there has to be some kind of copying or stealing of your specific ideas. So there has to be that kind of, that I don't know, skullduggery going on where someone's you know, taking, taking your rights and misusing them rather than just independently having arrived at something that's competing with you and um, so in, in terms of those unregistered rights and the ones that are most relevant to the digital health space and um, copyright plays a really big part because copyright is one of the things that protects original software so if you're laying down new code and um, for, your, for your digital health app or for the software that's driving your sensor arrangement uh, or, or any yeah, other kind of software then that will have copyright protection and it comes into existence automatically. And um, I guess the key is that the onus is very much on you as the cop- copyright owner to prove that it's your copyright and that the code was original and that you own it. And um, so it's all about good record keeping. Um, so even though it's you know, these unregistered rights are kind of free in the sense that you're not paying money to a patent office to secure those rights, there is still an overhead in securing those rights properly, but that overhead is in kind of your know, internal management and record keeping and just awareness, I suppose. So that, that's copyright, um, and it's infringed by someone, as the name says, who actually copies you. So you have to demonstrate that they've seen what you've done, they've taken it, they've copied it, and they've created their own their own version of it. Trade secrets is is another kind of, I guess, off, often overlooked but really powerful form of so, I was going to say protection. I mean, it's protection, but in protection in inverted commas, because it's all about keeping. So, so trade secret is basically information or, or or stuff that has value to your business because it's secret and that you protect appropriately. So, in the in the digital health space, that might be the algorithm that's driving some of the analysis that your apps doing, for example, that you see value in. You, you know, you've developed it yourself, you see value in there, it's super important that you keep that secret and you're taking appropriate steps to, to look after it and keep it secret. And those appropriate steps are sort of you know legal steps. So you make sure you've got your non-disclosure agreements in place with anyone that you're talking to about the algorithm or, or working on it with, but also physical sort of security steps as well. So from an IT technical perspective, you know, you've got it locked away in a secure your server, for example, so that's that's trade secrets and typically. They're infringement someone and, and you, you know you've heard the term probably trade secret theft and that's that's fundamentally what it is. You know someone gets hold of. That bit of secret information, so that algorithm, for example. Without your permission and they go and use it um, and I guess most often you see that where you have People you've been working with so whether that's employees or contractors and then you know they pop up a competitor and you know surprisingly the competitor produces something that's very similar to yours and so and that, that was actually that kind of apple watch massimo case that was one of the things that happened in there that i guess first sparked off <coughs> massimo's complaint against apple so apple had poached a couple of the kind of key um employees um from massimo who had been working on massimo's, um, pulse oximetry technology and you know fairly soon after that the idea of an apple watch having pulse oximetry features and um, uh, was was developed so that that was kind of the beginning of that dispute really so yeah and, and then and i guess the other right that it's worth mentioning um in this context is um database rights so you know as, as you'll know data is like crucially important in the in the digital health space yeah a lot of the <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the value in a business is around the, the data that they've been able to, to collect either through testing of their own device or just relationship they've, they've got with data providers and looking after that data appropriately and stopping other people misappropriating it can be really important and database rights are a sort of copyright type right but it's specifically attached to data. They're, they're the kind of suite of rights and, and I guess what you find with tech innovation generally and especially in the digital health space is that it won't be any one of these rights that's relevant. It'll generally be a kind of mosaic of these rights that you use to protect your innovation.
0: Thank you. That's such a useful overview. Before we move on, I'd just like to dig into a couple of bits there. So first of all, when it comes to patents, I think there's often confusion about patents in terms of the fact that they're actually a negative right rather than a permissive right. Can you just go into a bit more detail about that?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. You're right. That's one of the big mistakes I see, where people assume that if they've got a patent, that means they're free to commercialise the technology they developed and that they patented. And and sadly, that's not true at all. Because as you say, patents are described and, and in effect are a negative right. So they give you the right to stop other people doing something. They don't give you the right to do the thing that you patented. And, and I like to illustrate it and um, so maybe like a, a simple example which is so if you have the you have the bright idea pun intended of inventing a light bulb and um, and you get a pattern for your light bulb and i see your light bulb and i think that's a really great idea but when i'm sat at my desk working the light kind of shines in my eye a bit too brightly so i come up with the the the, the next innovation the next inventive step on top of that of the idea of having a shade around the light bulb and I get a patent for my lamp that includes your light bulb and my shade um now I can't commercialize and sell my lamp my lamp with the bulb and the shade without infringing your patent even though I've already got my own patent for it and similarly you can't sell lamps that include my shade idea um so I would need a license from you to use your light bulbs in my in my lamp and you could generate revenue that way by the license fee or we might agree to do a cross license so we could both sell lamps that have shades and bulbs and and, you know compete with one another in the marketplace so yeah so just because you've got your own patent doesn't mean that you're free to to commercialize so it's really important to be aware of other people's patent rights in particular and, and and take account of them
0: The second thing I wanted to ask a bit more about was this question of copyright and software code, uh, because I know there's some nuance there when it comes to open source code. Could you maybe share some of your thoughts on that?
1: Um, Yeah, so I guess the first thing, copyright, believe it or not, is actually also the foundation of open source. Um, And this is, again, where there's kind of confusion because a lot of people assume that open source just means it's kind of free to use however you want and um, no restrictions whatsoever. But actually, all of the open source um, arrangements are in effect copyright licenses. And they're free, you don't pay for them. That's that's the nature of open source. But there are provisions in those licenses that can impact how you can use or what you must do with your own software that you write incorporating that open source code. Um, and those terms vary depending on which open source library is you take um, your code from. But in the extreme cases, for example, if you incorporate open source code from certain libraries, you're under an obligation to make your software freely available under the same terms as well. So clearly, if what you're looking to do is build a digital health product that you want to commercialise and charge people to use, it's a very bad thing to incorporate code from from those open source libraries that have those extreme terms so you have to be so obviously yeah, open source is great and it's a, an excellent way of fast tracking development of software products and you can just take functions and, and slot them into your product but you you have to do it with an understanding of what you know what library you're taking it from what terms that implies or imposes on you in terms of your freedom to to commercialise and make money out of your product or not. So, yeah, it, it's one of it's again one of the sort of pitfalls that people fall into, and like a lot of the pitfalls in IP, they tend to be, they can be like ticking time bombs because you probably don't know about it at the time. And particularly you know, as the the person, the founder of the business, and um, you, you brought in some software people to to write the code from you, you might not even be aware of where they're taking that code from and how they're building it and then typically when these time bombs kind of when the time's up and they explode in your face is, is always at the, the worst possible moment because typically it's when you're in due, due diligence in a big fundraise and and you know the, the investors have some nasty laws on their side with their big sticks and they're prodding and poking and they uncover the fact that you've you've used this open source software and actually you know, it's damaging the, the possibility of making money out of your product and the investment falls through so yeah, so definitely something. If yeah, There's nothing nothing inherently wrong with using open source, but just do it with your eyes open and make sure you know what, what the implications are.
0: Yeah, definitely something to be aware of. So moving on, I would love you to share with us what the default position is when it comes to IP. So if, if you don't do anything, you don't get any patents or any other protection. What happens by default?
1: I guess so. There's, there's a couple of ways of answering that, or, or different aspects to think about there. So the the, f- the first one I think it's worth talking about a bit is the ownership position, because I so IP is a is a so the same we've got the IP assets and we've got the rights that associate, associate with those, and both of those things you can think of as bits of property. So they're owned by someone, and the question is, well, who owns them? and And the starting point is always it's the creator. So if you've created something, the default position is that you're going to own that. Now, in some cases, there's legal provisions that already butt in and change that default position. So if you're employed to um, create something, then in most cases, your employer is going to own the asset and they're going to own any of the kind of automatic rights that arise associated with that asset. If you are a contractor, or if it's, if it's a business, you contract someone to do some work for you, then in, in most cases, and copyright in particular is the example, the default is that contractor will own the, the copyright and the software code they are written, as an example, unless you've got a contract in place that says otherwise. And um, now if you're working with software developer or a you know, business and you're contracting with them, there's a, there's a pretty good chance if they're reputable, but they'll have standard terms and conditions that say something along the lines of so long as you pay us the money that you've agreed to pay us for doing the work then you'll get the copyright and you'll get the software and it'll be yours but that's not always the case so it's it's, again it's something that you need to be super aware of because again it's one of those ticking time bombs that is going to explode in your face when you you come to sell the business or raise money and 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 so yeah just think i guess part of it is just having the right mindset and being aware that IP is something you need to need to be concerned about and and get right from the outset. So yeah, so that's the ownership position. And then I guess the default, the other default to talk about is just the protection position, which we've kind of already covered, but basically, clearly without taking any action, you're not gonna get any of these strong registered IP rights. So you're gonna be reliant on the the unregistered rights to the extent that they're relevant, so copyright software, but I guess, stepping back a little bit further, the more general position is that if you put something into the public domain, then unless you can identify some of the unregistered rights that are relevant and they won't always be, then you're effectively just gifting that to the public and people are free
0: to use it. So the default position is that the IP belongs to the creator. Can you tell us about what happens in situations where there's co-creation that happens. so either two companies are collaborating or perhaps a company and an academic institution are collaborating what happens then
1: yeah i mean you can you can sum it up by saying it gets really messy Um, (laughs) (laughs) but but so so the 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 sort of the same principles apply so it's own yeah the starting point is its own by the creator so you need to identify who the creator is now sometimes when you look at a collaborative project you'll be able to identify specific assets that have been created in that project that have one specific creator and then the ownership will flow based on who that creator was other times then it will genuinely be a joint creation so you'll have two create two or more creators of the same asset and then typically the way the rules the default rules apply is that asset will just be shared the ownership will be shared between those those creators, and similarly, the rights, the automatic rights associated with that will be shared between those creators. And actually, shared ownership is one of those things that can can cause op- obstacles to exploitation down the line because you you know if if the different people that own a share of that asset want to do different things with it, then that can create problems, can create tensions, and, and that's why if if you're entering into any kind of collaboration. You really need to be thinking about that ownership position up front because all of these defaults can be contracted out of effectively so you can have an agreement um up front that specifies who's going to own what who's going to be entitled to use the outputs from the collaboration and in what way they can use those so you know typically in a, a kind of academic commercial type collaboration you'll often have an arrangement where and, and it depends a bit on who's you know who's Who's putting what into the project but yeah you know, but very often you'll have an arrangement where it says well the the commercial entity is going to own the IP because they're the ones that are going to be exploiting it but perhaps there'll be some kind of license some kind of kind of payment back to university almost certainly the university will have the right to use the output from the collaboration for further research and there'll be you know rules around or giving them permission to publish about that because that's clearly one of the one of the drivers for the academic research or one of the, the outputs is the one is the publication side of things so yeah so when you're going to that sort of collaboration um, it's really important that you have those discussions up front about one who's going to own what and two who's going to be allowed to do what with the output from that collaboration and then get it all captured in the agreement and um, and there are yeah there's, there's templates out there that help guide those discussions and um, but I'm always so so for, particularly for university collaborations there's there's a bunch of temp- templates out there called the Lambert Lambert templates so they came out of a study saying well these are the kind of model approaches that you typically use and that they're, they're a really good starting point if it's if it's more of a commercial collaboration I'm I'm a kind of proponent of not not starting with a template right at the outset, so almost like forget the legal side of it, put that to one side, don't get the lawyers involved too early, just as you know, as commercial entities talking one to the other, have a, have a proper kind of open conversation about what it is you're trying to achieve, you know, how do, basically how do we make this a win-win and then once you, once you've got that understanding, then get the lawyers involved and get them to produce the paperwork to to reflect. Those kind of decisions that you've made, all those those yeah decisions you made about how you want the relationship to work and who's going to do what. And um, because otherwise, you can sometimes find that if you start with the template, you kind of it, it's that classic, you know if I want to get to where I'm going, I wouldn't start from here. And mm-hmm. if you, so if and if you start with the wrong template, it kind of skews those negotiations and it can actually cause more trouble than it's worth.
0: Mm, interesting. I think that the the academic commercial one can be particularly challenging because there is that friction that you were talking about there between academics needing and wanting to publish things and the commercial entities not wanting to put things into the public domain so that that's an interesting one uh, I wonder if there's is there any difference there when you get companies that's that are spin outs of academic institutions fundamentally
1: like the underlying rules are the same and the concepts are the same you, you typically find though that where it's IP that's being created within the university environment, and then it's going to be exploited. The, the starting point um, very much tends to be that the university wants to hold on to that IP and license it to the spin out company. And I guess there's quite good reasons for that. I mean, one of the reasons is that, that you know, a, a lot of startups don't succeed um, and you know, it's much more difficult for the university to kind of claw that IP back to potentially deploying another spin out or whatever if they have assigned it so sold it all or handed it all over to the to the spin out at the outset so sometimes what you'll see is arrangements where the university license the spin out and they might license them exclusively which means basically means the university agreeing we're only going to license this to you and we're not going to license it to anyone else so you've got that it's not as good as owning the ip as the startup but it's almost as good or at least you know the university aren't going to be setting up other competitors Um, and what you'll then see if the spin out is negotiated in the right way is they may then have an option to take on ownership of the IP at a future point so based on milestones so whether that's based on the startup becoming you know revenue generating or having raised a certain amount of money or just having lasted You know, a a sufficient length of time that the university will have confidence that it's going to be an ongoing concern. Then, at that point, the startup, if it was there in the agreement in the first place, the startup might have the option to either purchase for a fee or purchase for some kind of ongoing royalty type arrangement the IP from the university. But you're right, there's there's always this tension. So, the university, I guess, rightly at the outset, want to hold on to the IP, but particularly as a startup kind of begins to grow and is looking for external investment. The investors will quite often want the IP to be owned by the startup because they're kind of reluctant to invest in a startup that doesn't own the IP it's based on. And so, yes, it's about looking for these compromises that that mean that the deal can be done and puts both parties in a position that they're comfortable with and, and just allows for flexibility down the line, I suppose. That's the other thing I guess that sometimes gets or forgotten about or not thought about enough is that when you're negotiating these kind of collaborative arrangements doesn't have to be a kind of once and for all there's there's nothing wrong with accepting that this is the starting point and it's it's going to be the simplest way to get things off the ground and get going but you can build into these agreements the opportunity for kind of changes down the line or at least review down the line that that might then result in changes to the way that relationship's working
0: so i'd now like to address with you a common perhaps misconception in the space of health tech and IP, which is a statement you often hear that you can't get a patent for health tech technology or you can't patent an AI algorithm. Can you tell us a bit about where that idea comes from and whether it's true? So let's
1: start with the second one. I just say it's not true, but we'll come back to a bit more kind of why it's not true. Well, it's not always true maybe it's a better way of saying it but 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 where it comes from so if, if you look at the letter of the law particularly in the uk you know taking the uk and europe as an example the, the law basically says you can't patent software you can't patent computer programs and you can't patent mathematical methods so if you just take it at face value you look at that and you go well that means i can't patent anything in this digital health space because it's all software and it's all yeah, you know, mathematical algorithms and and you know, data and stuff like that. But the, the way the law has evolved and, and the way the law is actually written. It means you can't patent if you like, you can't patent the software code itself and you can't patent the algorithm in isolation. But what it doesn't prevent you from doing is patenting a technical application of that software code or a technical application of that algorithm. So if you if you're doing something kind of technically useful in the real world with that algorithm. So you're analyzing a radiographic image to pick out particular features from that image that are indicative of a certain um, physiological condition, then that's something that's considered to be technical in the real world. And if if it's new and it's sufficiently kind of inventive, then you can get a pattern for it, even though the innovation is in the underlying algorithm. And similarly with software, you know, if you've got soft <clears throat> so if you've got software that is just taking, I don't know, a medical directory and turning it into an online version that you can easily search, then that's almost certainly not going to be patentable because you're just if you like you're just sort of computerizing something that was there already, but there's no kind of technical innovation going on there. But if you've got software that's collecting data from a bunch of sensors and it's it's, it's doing some calculations with that data and it's spitting out a useful kind of diagnosis at the end of that, then that may well be something that's patentable. Because again, it's, it's, it's providing sort of a useful, tangible result in the real world. It's not just kind of pure mathematics. It's not just a kind of isolated algorithm that sat there as an algorithm. It's actually part of, it's, it, I guess it, you know, it's part of a bigger machine that has an impact in the real world. And in those scenarios, I mean, there's still, so there's still a bunch of other hurdles you have to get over. So when you're, when your patent application is being examined, firstly, they're looking, you know, is, is it technical? So is it the sort of thing that patents are there to protect? <clears throat> but then also, if it passes that hurdle, we're also looking to say, well, is it new? So is it different in some way from what's out there in the public domain already? And if it passes that hurdle, then, then the kind of final question is, is it, does it have so the magic word in in kind of UK and European law? Is it does it have an inventive step, and um, and what that means is is it something more than the next obvious step forwards given what's already out there in the public? So so kind of reversing back to the first question, it, it's sort of understandable why there's this misconception that software is not patentable, um, but unfortunately because that's that's the kind of myth that's out there, or you know, or, or if you like the semi truth that's out there. It kind of blinkers people and they think oh well my innovation is software therefore patents aren't relevant and, and actually worse still because people in my experience associate sort of think of patents and intellectual property as basically one and the same thing they go well my innovations yeah my innovation is basically software based so patents aren't relevant which means intellectual property is not relevant which means they don't have to worry about ip and it just gets totally ignored and then that's where they run into all these issues with you know ownership and other people's trade secrets and copyright and yeah so the myth creates issues even though it's, there's some truth underlying it
0: and are we seeing a lot of ai algorithms getting patents in the uk and eu
1: yes i mean so there's uh, certainly a lot of patent applications being filed and there's definitely examples of patents being granted for kind of ai implemented um inventions and particularly in the ai side of things um you're, you're not going to get a patent just because you're using AI. So AI is kind of not the thing that's gonna bring that technical character to the thing you're claiming is an invention. But if you're using AI in an innovative way to give you a better technical result, so a better you know, better diagnosis, more clarity on the image you're looking at, quicker and more reliable and more secure analysis of the data you're collecting from a bunch of sensors, you know, all of these things will be seen by the patent officers as technical innovation and the fact that they're, yeah, they're using AI as one of the tools to implement them doesn't detract from that and, and if anything yeah, in some cases will will
0: help. So if a relatively early stage company were developing the technology and were unsure about whether they should be thinking about getting a patent or not, how would you advise that they approach that decision?
1: So there's various factors there. I guess the first thing is I'd advise all kind of early stage businesses to have you know, some kind of basic plan around IP, which, which might be nothing more than, you know, recognising and and realising that IP is is you know always going to be significant to their business. It's going to be a lot of the value in them. So have some plans in place to look after it, even if at the outset that's very much just around keeping it secret and and giving yourself the opportunity. To make decisions about oh, are we going to protect this and how are we going to protect it and um, and also thinking carefully about those ownership issues particularly when you're we're in a startup and you're you're you kind of pulling help from lots of places don't you from wherever you can get it but actually if you don't when you when you're accepting help from people or you're getting people involved in the business and they maybe you know the employment contract's not in place yet or they're not going to be an employee they're just going to be a contractor but actually they're just doing you a bit of a favor so there's no agreement all these things can cause ip issues so start. Just have the right, I guess I call it an IP mindset sometimes. So having just having IP forefront, you know, front of mind so that. You just at least stop and think about it um, and say wrap these things up. And and then in terms of the decision about whether or not to file a patent for something, I guess the main factors are, you know, one, one, is it the sort of thing that I stand a chance of getting patent protection for? And that's not an easy question to answer, um, particularly without expert advice. But you can you know, yeah, you can normally pick the brains of, of someone who has a bit of experience. Is prepared to have a, have a quick chat, yeah, you know, without charging lots of money for that. So that, that's kind of the starting point. But then, secondly, e- even if the conclusion is yes, I can get a patent for this, it's, it still might not be the right thing to file for patent protection, because when you file for patent protection, you're basically kind of setting the ball rolling. What you know, one the ball that kind of rapidly picks up stuff along the way and it starts costing you more and more and more. And um, so you have to think about the time, you know, even if you are going to get go down the patent route, you have to think about the timing of filing those patent applications so that you know that the kind of the, what you know as best you can, that the budget's going to be available to continue that process when you go forward. So you might want to delay so that you're not kind of placing those um, fundraising uh, pressures on yourself too early. Um, but also, when you file a patent application, it's going to be published typically 18 months after you file it. And it includes quite a lot of detail about what you're doing and how you do it. So even if, you know, even if you've got budget, even if you think there's, or you've been advised there's a reasonable prospect of getting patent protection, it still might not be the right way because you might, you know, when you, when you look at the overall commercial picture, you might be better off keeping it as a trade secret and and not ever publishing it. So yeah, and and it's it's interesting actually. So you you know there's a lot of often there's a lot of pressure to file patent applications, particularly when you're on that fundraising path, because you know a lot of investors place a lot of value in that patent application box being ticked, and, and and so sometimes as a startup business you have to you have to resist that, and yeah, you know, some of the some of the businesses I work with, part of what I'm doing is if you like giving them giving them that narrative for the investors to to be able to explain to the investors why patents aren't aren't the best thing in this particular mm-hmm. case or why it's not the right time for them and um, and yeah my experience is that's generally well received the you know what 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 investors don't like is when they, they say well where are your patents and and the founders will be like oh we're not really sure we've got around yet, yeah we don't we're not sure whether we can get patents or not whereas actually if, if you get asked that question you can come back with a nice coherent yeah, well, actually, we've taken advice on this, and it's not the right time for patents yet. And in the meantime, we're we're using trade secret protection, and we're looking after our trade secrets in this way. And we've got all these NDAs in place. And you can you can, you can yeah gain a lot of kind of kudos with an investor by having a very kind of coherent, even if it's quite simple, but coherent kind of IP plan that you can present to them.
0: It's interesting what you're saying there about uh, being in a position of saying it's not the right time yet for a. a patent but i think there's also there is a risk of being too late to file a patent as well in the sense that you cannot have any public announcement prior to filing patent is that correct
1: yeah that's right so one of the requirements for patent protection is that your your invention that you're trying to protect needs to be novel so needs to be new and that at, at the point of filing and in most countries your own publication before you file a patent application makes it not new because it's already out there in the public domain before you filed. There's some countries where you get a bit of grace for your own publications. So in the US, for example, they have a 12 month grace period. So in, in most circumstances, if you've published something before you filed a patent application in the States, but that publication was less than 12 months before your filing date, then you still, you've not totally shot yourself in the foot. But in most countries in the world, it's really important that you file your patent application before anything goes in the public domain. And then and I guess the other thing that <clears throat> you know, motivates people to file sooner rather than later is that the patent system is a first come first serve system. So if you're in a particularly competitive space and you think that other people are working on similar innovation, then what you don't want is for them to get to the patent office first with their application, because that could then you know, block your commercialization down the line.
0: And I think it's worth saying that there is this kind of period of unknown of 18 months where there may be something being filed that you don't know about that's ahead of you. So you can't necessarily find those technologies on the register.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: There is so much more I want to ask you about, but we are running short on time. So as we approach the end, I was wondering if you had any further kind of key tips or common pitfalls or errors that you could share
1: yeah so I, I think we've actually we've covered quite a lot of the pitfalls yeah so we, we've talked about ownership quite a bit which um, from, from my experience that's one of the areas that the ip goes wrong most often and um, and just not thinking about the ownership position we've talked about the big one which is people think that when they have a patent it means they're free to commercialize and um, and That's simply not the case because there can still be other people's patents out there that can block you. Um, and they sort you know, I guess that's a whole other topic maybe for another day as to kind of you know should you do about competitor IP and how much you know, should you spend on that But the biggest thing that goes wrong, which you've also sort of touched on is people just not thinking about IP early enough. I come across so many early stage businesses where they sort of recognize that IP is this this you know, is is an important thing, but they assume it's something that's kind of for the big boys to worry about. And and if they're too small to have to worry about IP, they'll think about that once they've, you know, got a couple of rounds of investment and got some money to spend on patents. But actually there's an awful lot that you you can do and you should do as an early stage business to to get those IP foundations in place that you can then build on once you've got funding to do so. Which, Which I guess kind of is the key tip, which is kind of just like, particularly in this digital health space where, you know, it's quite competitive and you've typically got quite a long runway to getting product on market because you've, you've got the regulatory hurdles that you have to overcome as well. So you're going to be looking for investment to get there. You really need to be thinking, you know, recognising that IP is, is going to be one of the critical bits of that jigsaw to getting to succeeding as a business. So start thinking about it early, have a plan in place at an early stage, which could be something very simple, but just at least make sure you're kind of curating that IP that you're developing and, and looking after it and not letting it leak out in, in, in the multiple ways that it can. And think about data as well as part of that. That's that's probably the, in some ways, the biggest takeaway, because more and more, the conversations I'm having with with startups and, and other, well, other businesses in this space are very data focused and that's where they're recognizing a lot of the value and a lot of the sort of potential future opportunities in the the capture and exploitation of that data so understanding the data and knowing that you've got the ability to use it downstream in the way you want to use it is, is super important
0: thank you such useful tips if people do want to learn more about ip where would you direct them where's a good place to find more information or guidance
1: so there's, there's some quite good resources out there. So the UK Intellectual Property Office has some quite good um, kind of accessible information about IP and um, focused mainly, I guess, on the registered rights, but also some stuff around, you know, they, they have some useful information around copyright and trade secrets, some stuff around IP valuation, which is always something that people seem to be interested in. Um, and then WIPO as well. So WIPO, World Intellectual Property Office, they have a lot of free um, resources as well. Um and then of course, yeah, there's a bunch of experts in the field um who put stuff out there on LinkedIn. So yeah, follow me on LinkedIn and you'll hopefully you learn some useful stuff. Um so yeah.
0: Yes, I would recommend doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so listen, thank you so much, Stephen. You've managed to distill such a complex topic into a podcast episode. So thank you so much. I've certainly found it really helpful and I'm sure our listeners will too.
1: That's great. No, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on.